Hello. Welcome to the Kinks and Beatles Daily Deep Dive. I am your host, Tony Fry. This is episode 223, and today we are talking about the song Flying by the Beatles. <clears throat> this is the end of our first week of live broadcast. We've had a few hiccups here and there, um, including tonight, just leading up to this uh, recording. But uh, this is how we're going to do it from now on. I, I like I like it. I've been getting some good feedback from people, and uh, I think it'll be fun. So if you haven't joined us yet for a live broadcast, make sure that you do that and chime in on the chat room and say hello and share your thoughts on uh, everything we're talking about here at the Daily Deep Dive. All right. So today, like I said, we're talking about Flying by the Beatles. This was released November 27, 1967 on the American Magical Mystery Tour LP and December 8, 1967 on the UK Magical Mystery Tour double EP. Um, track is third on the LP, fifth on the EP. And this is actually the band's first released instrumental recording for EMI, as well as the first track credited to all four band members. Um, they did try to record an instrumental during the Rubber Soul sessions that came out as 12-bar original on um, the anthology discs. And then they did a... a instrumental with Tony Sheridan but this is the first released Beatles recording um, of an instrumental which is notable um, and there's another notable thing about this song that we'll talk about a little bit later the um, first sessions for this track were on September 8th 1967 and at that time the working title of the track was aerial tour instrumental um, and on this session, the track had a lot of elements that wouldn't end up on the final release. There were the basic tracks of guitar, organ, and drums. But there were also three other organ tracks which were reversed and assigned to different tracks, as well as a sample of a jazz saxophone at the end of the track. They just randomly pulled tape for some jazz solo um, that didn't end up on the final track, obviously, as you know. Um, and all of that was mixed down during this session, and then John added some Mellotron, and then all four added vocals. So a lot got done on this first session on uh, the 8th. Then it sits there for a few weeks. And we come back to the second session on January 28th, and the band took those earlier recordings and added another Mellotron um, played by John again. So he's playing both Mellotrons, more guitar from George, and then a bunch of percussion from Ringo. And then Ringo and John also compiled um, five takes worth of tape loops, uh, special effects, reverse tape, all that kind of stuff um, that would end up being superimposed onto the band's recording. And so by the end of this night, this is their second session, mind you, by the end of this night, the song was nine and a half minutes long. Which proves, again, that there is probably sufficient material in the vault for an expansive Magical Mystery Tour set. And like I mentioned a couple days ago, I think it would have been cool if they had done a full 1967 collection. Aside from a session to actually master the track um, for, for mono and stereo mixing, um, this was all done in two sessions. Which is something when you consider that it's a nine and a half minute track. Uh, initially. Um... The, the song was edited down, by the way, at that second um, session. So all they had to do after that was master it. 
The harmony of this song, this is the other kind of notable thing about it, is as basic as it comes because it's a straight-ahead 12-bar blues in the key of C. That's no flats, no sharps. It's all the white keys on the piano. And for being a band so heavily influenced by musicians steeped in that 12-bar tradition, Chuck Berry, Little Richard, uh, you know, all the, the old blues guys that predated them, the Beatles rarely wrote in straight 12 bars. Almost never. Uh, if you really stop and think about it, you can maybe think of three tunes that are straight 12 bar, and I might actually be giving them more songs than they actually get. It's It was very rare, um, but this is the second instrumental they've tried to record as a band, and it's the second 12 bar instrumental, because like I said, the Rubber Soul instrumental was a 12 bar as well. And the reason of that is it's easy to jam to. Every musician worth half their weight in salt is uh, well adept at 12-bar blues. You can be able to play on it for hours and hours and hours on end without any kind of issue. So when you're when you're thinking we need to come up with incidental music and we need to do it quick, um, it makes perfect sense to do a 12-bar blues. And the track never leaves that 12-bar pattern. Um, there is a code attack on the, at the end made up of the weird tape loops and, and reverse instruments that I talked about. But each pass through um, the cycle is just a standard 12 bar. But to make it interesting, each pass through of those 12 bars, they add some more layers of instrumentation. Um, so it does keep you interested. Now, I don't know how much instrumentation they added for nine and a half minutes worth of 12 bar blues, but... Um, that's how they that's how they built the song so that you are actually engaged in it. One cool bit about the guitar part um, that opens the song is how George harmonizes the line on the first and third strings. So he's doing double stops, which is just when you're playing two strings at the same time, right? Um, and a lot of guys, most guys, um, guitar players, do the double stops on the neighboring strings. So it's five and six, you know, or four and five. Yeah. Those are all double stops on neighboring strings. What George is doing is he's doing it on the first and the third string. He's skipping a string in the middle. This opens up the harmony a ton. So instead of being like a D and a G, which, you know, is fine, um, but only a fourth, now I can go down to this B and G. Right, so this opens up the harmony a little bit. And when you couple that with the tremolo effect on his guitar, these lines sound pretty haunting because you've got kind of this open harmony and you've got this uh, little wobbly effect on, on the instrument. So when you're playing it, you can do one of two ways to do this. Um, and I'll tell you which one I think George is most likely doing. You can do it where you have the pick in your hand and you are also, so you're picking the low string with the pick, but also pulling the top string with like your middle finger. And what this does is because that top string cuts through more because it's higher pitch, um, this allows you to kind of bring the bottom note up in the balance. Okay, you hear a lot of country guys will do that, you know. Right, you'll hear like that kind of stuff. 
what I think George is doing though is he's actually picking with his fingers all of both of them, just the way it sounds. That. So you could do it either way if you're covering this song live. But to do it like George's, I do believe he's um, just finger picking it. For the film of this song, um, or the film sequence, the part of this song, I'll, I'll get this sentence out. For the part of the film that this song is from, um, the sequence is just over a video of passing countryside. That's it. And what they did was they changed the uh, the color of the filter on these scenes. I actually had a slide done up for this, um, but it appears that I numbered it wrong. So you had this passing scene, like a, a, a video you know, from out the window of the bus, and it's all filtered green. And then it would switch to a red filter, and then a purple filter, or whatever. Um, but the movie was broadcast in black and white. So all those filters meant nothing. And I can't imagine how boring this was to watch since it's a pretty slow section of the movie anyway. I mean, Magical Mystery Tour movie is not a great movie. I'll just say it. I know that's a bold statement. This sequence in the movie is not a great sequence in a not great movie. This sequence in black and white is almost completely useless. I mean, picture... You are watching this for the first time. It's the day after Christmas. You have this spacey instrumental, so the Beatles aren't even really singing a song. Um, underneath a video of Random Hillside, you don't see the color filters because it's in black and white. I mean, that's riveting stuff. It's probably about as riveting as listening to me talk about color slides on a podcast. Um, but that's how, you know, that's what it is in the movie. At the end of the day, uh, this is actually a pretty pleasant track. I actually really like this song. Um, it's short and sweet. serves its purpose as incidental music. It adds to that airiness of the album that I've talked about a couple times now. That you have just all this space. And this. there's a lot going on in this uh, track. You know, There's a lot of percussion. There's a couple of mellotrons. There's a couple of guitars. There's, there's stuff going on. Um, but there's still that openness in the mix and how it sounds. Uh I'm not sure how wonderful the nine and a half minute version is, but I do hope we get to hear it at some point. If they're not going to release it on an album, you put it up on YouTube as just something on their YouTube channel or something. You know, it it is of interest whether I want to listen to it a second time ever in my life. Who knows? But it is of interest to Beatles fans. Now, that's all I got for that one. Let's move on to listener emails. Um, I just got this one today from Ted. And Ted says, and this is kind of a long one, so bear with me. He says, I just discovered your podcast and recently dipped back to the episode on Top of the Pops. You may have received a more satisfactory answer to your question about the garbled underwater sounding voice at the end of the song. Where This is the part where he says, and you know what this means? This means you can earn some real money. I wondered about that voice for as long as I had the album since the 70s. Beginning in the 90s, I would see Ray Davies perform on the Storyteller and X-Ray tours, and he would imitate the accents of Wes Collins and Page. Those are the managers that he's actually name-checking um, throughout this album. He gave Wes and Collins posh English public schoolboy accents. Larry Page had a 
more of an East End sounding working class accent that I immediately recognized as the voice at the end of Top of the Pops. At this point, I really don't remember whether he vocalized that underwater gurgling sound in his solo shows, but the accent he vocalized and assigned to Page was identical to the accent I remembered from the record. Perhaps he held some celebratory champagne in his mouth in the studio when he vocalized that line before swallowing. Pure conjecture on my part, but the song is very theatrical. So that's cool. I didn't I didn't realize that that might have been uh, a vocal imitation. That's an interesting tidbit. He goes on. He says, although you specifically didn't mention it, I always thought that the line, I've been invited to dinner with a prominent queen, is brilliant and a great double entendre. I think most folks have tried to speculate on the identity of the queen in terms of a gay man in swing in London, but when the record came out in 1970, I assumed he was referring to Elizabeth II. By then, I think the queen had met and given honors to members of the Beatles and the Rolling Stones and other British entertainers, but not any members of the Kinks yet. So I think it refers to this pinnacle of success attained by some in the British entertainment industry, and the reference to a prominent queen is a hilariously intentional name drop of Elizabeth herself. Of course, she's a prominent queen, as she is the only queen in the context of Top of the Pops and the BBC and NME and British pop music. And in two earlier songs, he specifically names members of the British royal family. Victoria was my queen. She bought a hat like Princess Marina. The name drop reveals the naive excitement of the ingenue pop star who really wants to boast about his upcoming royal honors. And of course, melodically, a prominent queen is so much more interesting when sung than the queen. Queen or Her Majesty the Queen, which just sounds pompous. Anyway, thanks for a terrific podcast that shines a light on a terrific songwriters and musicians. This is a great email. Uh, I want more of these kinds of emails. So I, too, I didn't mention it in the podcast, but I do like that line, a prominent queen. Um, I had always thought it was just uh, just a play on words. You know, he needed he wanted to fill those syllables um, and he's trying to elevate it like like the queen isn't elevated enough. I have to elevate it to being a prominent one. But then reading this email, I think, you know, maybe he's talking about Lola. Right? Maybe he's uh, uh, talking about a drag queen he met in a bar. You know, so it's kind of tying in the tale from the Lola song into this tale of rock and roll ascension and all the um, excess and downfalls that come along with that. So if you have thoughts on that one line of song... Um, definitely send them my way because I like I like reading those kinds of things. Uh, I'm looking in the live chat. We don't have anybody in the live chat right now, so that's going to be it for me this week. Remember, we are live on Facebook every weeknight or every weekday, sometimes in the evening, sometimes in the afternoon. And uh, you are invited to come and chat and do all that kind of stuff with me in real time. Okay? And you can get a hold of me if you so desire, uh, via email, kinksandbeats at herohabit.com. Call me at 925-494-1739. And of course, you can find all the information you need about this podcast at herohabit.com. And there's a podcast button at the top of the page. Thanks for listening. Take care of yourselves. Have a great day and stay safe.